he believed in Yahweh and Yahweh credited it to him for righteousness. And so, uh, basically, what that, if that were to be put in dialogue, that would be simply, uh, he believed in Yahweh and God said, you are righteous. And what are you righteous on the basis of? You're righteous on the basis of the fact that you trusted me in this deep, deep moment of crisis. And so Abraham becomes righteous, uh, not by any um, uh, uh, thing that he does, but simply by his belief. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. Let me ask you a question, one that has been controversial in decades past. Is the doctrine of justification by faith alone uh, a doctrine that is in the Old Testament? Believe it or not, some Christians, a variety of Christians, have said no, or if it is, uh, if, if the answer is yes, it's a very hesitant yes. But I would argue that when we look at the New Testament, whether it's uh, Paul or Peter or a variety of New Testament letters, uh, they argue for the doctrine of justification by going back to the Old Testament. In fact, if we take someone like Paul in a letter like Galatians, Paul can't help but go back to a book like Genesis to explain that justification is not by works, but by faith alone. Well, this controversial topic is one that's very important if we are not only to understand justification uh, in a biblical way, but if we are to understand how the story of redemption uh, is one that God intends to progressively be unveiled from Genesis all the way through to the coming of Jesus Christ. I am delighted to have with me uh, someone that can help us look at justification in the Old Testament. He's a, an Old Testament scholar, in fact, and it is none other than Stephen Dempster. He is professor of religious studies at Crandall in New Brunswick, Canada, and he, you may know him from some of the books he's written. One of my favorite books is uh, Dominion and Dynasty, A Theology of the Hebrew Bible. He also has a more recent commentary called on Micah, the book of Micah, called A Theological Commentary. This is in the Two Horizons Old Testament Commentary series. And he's written a chapter that I hope our listeners will become familiar with. It's a chapter in a new book called The Doctrine on Which the Church Stands or Falls, Justification in Biblical, Theological, Historical, and Pastoral Perspective. This is a book I've edited with Crossway, and it's out this year. Uh, his chapter, uh, Steve Dempster's chapter, is called He Believed the Lord, the Pedigree of Justification in the Pentateuch. Steve, thank you so much for joining me on the Credo Podcast. You're welcome, uh, Matthew, and uh, just my, my privilege. Well, maybe the best way to begin uh, is with a very provocative comment uh, to get us started, and it comes from James Barr. 
Uh, this is from his book, The Concept of Biblical Theology. And let me just read this, this quotation. Really, it's a statement that he's making and uh, allow us to respond to it. He says this, um, he, he argues, the most prominent example of Christianizing, and here he's referring to the Old Testament, the most prominent example of Christianizing the Old Testament lies in the conception of justification by faith. Justification by faith is among the convictions that Christian Old Testament theologians have most often held, the one where they have been most reluctant to give up the Christianizing of the Hebrew Bible. Well, this provocative claim by James Barr is one that brings us face-to-face with one of the uh, more challenging questions. Not only how do we put our Bible together, but how do we understand uh, salvation or justification specifically? How do we understand a doctrine like this, not only from the New Testament perspective, but also from the Old Testament? Stephen, you have uh, studied these issues at great length. You've written on um, justification in the Pentateuch. What do you make of someone like Barr, and how how would you respond to him? Yes, um, um, that's a very uh, a good question. Um, James Barr is kind of, uh, um, in some ways, a contrarian in terms of uh, traditional views, and he's always trying to puncture balloons hmm. of doctrine and orthodoxy. Um, this is a, this is another example of that. Uh, he also has dealt with the issue of the fall and, and regarded the fall as something which is more of a Christianizing of the Old Testament than uh, than actually is the case in the Old Testament. But I think part of this issue, um, and it's when you look at many of the uh, people that disagree with um, with the idea that justification is in the Old Testament, when they're particularly looking at the Pentateuch. They see the um, the vast bulk of material has to deal with Sinai, the the law given at Sinai. So you're dealing with if you're looking at the text, you're dealing with um, um, one book, uh, um, halfway through one book, Exodus uh, 19, to uh, all of the book, uh, the rest of the book of Exodus, the entire book of Leviticus, um, and uh, ten chapters of Numbers dealing with the Torah um, and the importance of the Torah, and then the entire book of Deuteronomy being a rehash in many ways of the Torah, So, and with its stress on, on the commandments of God. And so in many ways, um, um, this uh, sort of overwhelms the vision. And I think, uh, and so, and, and you see, uh, as, as the Old Testament develops, the importance of the Torah, the importance of keeping the Torah for Israel, and, um, and, and so um, what happens is it overwhelms the vision, and you don't really see the importance of those early chapters of Genesis, um, which kind of um, uh, are very, very important because they precede the Torah, um, and they have a, uh, how would I put it, I would say a, a very strategic hermeneutical importance, and so... Um, by simply, how, how would I put it, it's almost like they're overwhelmed by all of this information on the importance of keeping Torah, that they, they, they kind of downplay what happens in those earlier chapters of Genesis, particularly uh, uh, in the story of Abraham uh, before, he's, he's, before he's circumcised. And so I think that uh, 
when I when I read the material, uh, I see that um, I see that strong threat, and uh, and as a result, um, the um, the hermeneutical uh, I, I guess uh, priority of those early chapters of Genesis is not seen. Now you've mentioned Genesis. Genesis 15 is a major text in this type of of debate. Uh, it, you know, someone like Bars is arguing, well, you know, we're just Christianizing the Old Testament here. But you've turned to Genesis 15 to demonstrate that, you know, far from it, actually, uh, what's happening here with Abraham, as you've just mentioned, it precedes the Torah, and it sets the trajectory for everything else that, that's going to follow, and uh, eventually uh, the coming of Christ and, and his message Maybe you could walk us through a passage like Genesis 15, or maybe you want to start earlier, Genesis 12. What, what is happening with Abraham? What is this covenant God is making with him? And where exactly do we see the doctrine of justification in uh, a text like Genesis 15? Okay, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, uh, you have to realize that uh, what uh, Genesis is broken down into really two sections, Genesis 1 to 11, um, which is the primal history, and Genesis 12 to 50, which are the, the patriarchal stories. And, and the first patriarch, of course, is, is Abraham. Um, but Genesis 1 to 11 um, is the backstory of everything that happens in Genesis 12 uh, to 50. And uh, if, you, if you think about Genesis 1 to 11 as kind of the problem, stressing the problem, and Genesis 12 to 50, the kind of solution to the problem of humanity. I think that's a good way to understand it. But of course, what's happened is that you've had a story uh, that's gone awry. You have the story of uh, Genesis 1 and 2 and the creation and uh, human beings placed in the garden um, to be uh, the stewards of God's creation, having dominion and, uh, and rule over the creation as the image and likeness of God. Um, they fall when they're tested. And as a result of that fall, the world just spins into uh, um, disarray. You have the murder of Cain, uh, uh, murder, Cain's murder of Abel. You have uh, the boast of the seventh descendant uh, of, of Adam on Cain's side, of Lamech, who boasts of uh, killing children um, and taking vengeance into, God's, into, into his hands. And then um, instead of letting God do it, and then, of course, you have the story of the flood, where everything um, just it, it grows from uh, bad to worse, and it's uh, as one scholar, Gerhard von Raud, said, it's like an avalanche of sin and an avalanche of judgment, and then you come to the story of the Tower of Babel, and uh, and it is uh, it's just uh, you know there just doesn't seem just doesn't seem to be any more hope as God disperses humanity out into the world, confuses their language because they're trying to bring heaven, as it were, to earth on their own terms. Mm. So it's against that background where people are trying to make a name for themselves, and when they're trying to uh, um, basically uh, uh, live autonomously, um, that God calls out Abraham to follow him. And Abraham, he, he promises um, that he'll make him a great name, where the people of the Tower of Babel and the people before uh, like Nimrod, we're trying to make a name for themselves. God's going to make a great name for Abraham. Um, he's also going to make him a great nation. And really, the, uh, Abraham and, and Sarai, um, 
they don't have any children. She's probably past the age of childbearing at this point. Um, but they're going to be a, a, a great nation, which means they're going to have many descendants, and they don't have any. Mm-hmm. And um, um, they're going to have a, a new relationship with God. But also, um, uh, this uh, this particular, and they're going to be given land as well. Um, but there's an as- another aspect of the promise, and that is that uh, they're going to be an un- on an unstoppable mission of blessing to bless the world through their seed. And so they leave. And the whole point of Genesis uh, 12, 1 to 3, which is really the uh, the hinge, which connects Genesis 1 to 11 with Genesis 12 to 50, um, is this is God's salvation project for the world. And so uh, Abraham and Sarah leave, uh, and they go to uh, the land of Canaan. Um, and there they set up shop in a land which is not their own, uh, and in which um, uh, um, the Canaanites are living there. They still don't have children coming. Um, and it's in Genesis 15 when we kind of reach a crisis. And I think that's interesting. You know, Abram's followed God, and Sarah's followed, and they, but they reach a crisis. And that crisis has to do with the fact that Abraham's future is in real doubt. Probably 10 years have moved on since they left. Abraham was 75 and Sarai was was 65. Um, They don't have an heir um, and they don't have any land. And uh, Abraham now speaks to God for the first time in the narrative, um, an actual explicit dialogue. I'm sure that he's spoken before, God's spoken to him before, but they've never had a dialogue before. And oftentimes when this kind of dialogue happens, you really sense um, the deepest concerns of someone's heart. And Abram just basically says, um, God uh, assures him not to be afraid. And what is he afraid of? He's afraid of his future. And so the, the, the whole issue then becomes, uh, he, he, looks, he looks at his, his servant, uh, Eliezer, and he says, I guess this is the one, Lord, uh, that's going to be my heir. <laughs> and God says, no, it's not, he's not going to be your heir. Uh, you can't domesticate the promise. It's going to come from your own loins. And um, and so then uh, you get this statement uh, where Abraham goes out into the... Uh, it's, it's a vision which is taking place at night, and he looks up... God tells him to look up at the stars, and he says, Thus your seed will be. And there you get this text. And it's sort of a... Uh, Abram believed in the Lord. And very rarely in the Genesis stories do you get sort of explanatory comments. And here's an explanatory comment. He believed in Yahweh, and Yahweh credited it to him for righteousness. And so, uh, basically, what that, if that were to be put in dialogue, that would be simply, um, he believed in Yahweh, and God said, you are righteous. And what are you righteous on the basis of? You're righteous on the basis of the fact that you trusted me in this deep, deep moment of crisis. And so Abraham becomes righteous, uh, not by any um, uh, uh, thing that he does, but simply by his belief. Uh, now, uh, um, I think this is the, the point that's being made um, uh, in that text. And, of course, what happens then, there's another question. Abraham says, what am I going to do? Uh, what, what, what about the land? Uh, God says, I'm, I'm the, the God who's brought you up from Ur. And he says, well, what about the land? And, uh, and then God basically tells him to uh, uh, 
go through this sacrificial ritual where he takes animals, he cuts them in two, and uh, and uh, then he has a vision at night where he sees a, a blazing sort of torch going through the pieces, and then God says, look, I'm going to give you this land. First, you're going to go down to Egypt. Uh, you're going to be there for 400 years, and uh, meaning his descendants, but I'm going to bring you back uh, because the iniquity of the Canaanites is not yet complete. Um, it has not reached a place where I'm going to judge it. Um, but then he says, he says, I will bring you back here, and this is the land. And then it says clearly, another interpretive covenant, in that day God made a covenant with Abram mm. that he would give him the land. So, so in a way, I think it's interesting that the covenant follows the uh, stress on Abram becoming righteous, that God made him righteous. And that, uh, and that, um, um, uh, how, how can I put it? Uh, the covenant then follows that. Um, so I think it's really, really important. That's a, that is a really a critical text in the Abram story. And it's interesting. Um, 13 years later, Abram will have doubts again mm-hmm. when God says, I want you to be circumcised. I'm going to give you the sign of the covenant and I want you to be circumcised. And Abraham basically says, "Look, let uh, uh, another son that he had through uh, through uh, uh, a domestic uh, servant uh, be your uh, be the one who will live before you as a child of promise." Says, "No, no, it's going to be uh, through your own son, through Sarah." And so, essentially, what happens is um, that uh, Abraham is circumcised. Excuse me, <coughs> Abraham is circumcised. And that circumcision is not an accidental sign. That circumcision was practiced throughout the ancient world um, as a means of, uh, often as a right into puberty for young boys. But this is the only example of which I'm aware where um, uh, children uh, at the age of eight days will have to be circumcised. And what is the circumcision a sign of? It is a sign that the promise is going to come through Abram's, a promise of the world being blessed through Abram's seed. And so the circumcision basically is a reminder, as Hebrews looked at themselves, that we are going to be a means by which the world is blessed through our seed. And uh, and looking ahead, of course, I see that, uh, Christians see that as fulfilled in Jesus. But the, the, the issue is the circumcision is not a, a work uh, in, a, in a way which justifies them, Abraham. It's something he's already been made righteous. Mm. Um, the circumcision is a sign or a seal of that kind of righteousness, <laughs> that faith in the promise. So so that, that would be, I think that's really, really important to stress. Uh, this comes before the law. It comes before uh, um, um, Sinai. It's very, very important to, to stress that. Now, um, later, when Isaac is born and um, uh, Isaac grows up, uh, it, God says to Isaac, um, in, a re- in an amazing passage, he says to him in chapter 26 of, uh, of, of Genesis, he says, I'm going to give to your seed all these lands and all the nations of the earth will be blessed in your seed. And it says this, 
because Abraham heard my voice and he kept my charge, my commandments, my decrees, and my Torah. Now, that is language right out of the uh, the law given at Sinai in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 11, 1. It's language. And so the rabbis could never understand that. They, they, they basically said, look, um, um, this means that Abraham knew the Torah. No, it doesn't. He wasn't given the Torah, but he was someone who believed in Yahweh, mm-hmm. and it was as if he kept the Torah right. uh, by that faith. Anyway, those are some thoughts uh, about this, the, the, key, the key point of Exodus or Genesis 15 um, within the Abraham story. So helpful. I, I really enjoy and like how you phrased it there towards the end, how the covenant is something that follows uh, Abraham's justification and and how even with circumcision in Genesis 17 that this is uh, this this isn't uh, you know s- some way of, of Abraham having to prove his justification in the sense that it, it's not there yet and he has to he, he's hoping to one day be justified rather as you said uh, circumcision for example is a, is a type of um, in Genesis 17 among other things it, it, this is a language that indicates a sign or a seal uh, of, of what the covenant is all about. Now, before we go on, because I would like to transition from a passage like Genesis 15 to the rest of, of the Torah, but can you just, uh, just for a minute address how uh, maybe uh, some scholars, you know, the new perspective on Paul comes to mind, how, how does your interpretation, what you just outlined, how does that differ from them where they go back to, you know, as, as they're investigating Paul, they go back to, you know, these signs or seals, you know, circumcision, for example, and they interpret these covenant badges in a way that, that maybe does or does not take Justification in Genesis 15 into account? How, how would you contrast what you've described with some of these uh, more recent interpretations? Yeah, um, I'm thinking um, uh, mainly when I, when I look at uh, um, Genesis on this, I see, uh, I do see, uh, how, how, how can I put it? I do see uh, this idea of... Um, Abraham's obedience um, stressed a lot in the new perspective. Um, Abraham's obedience. There's no question there is this obedience. Um, but uh, you find, for example, in Genesis 22, um, the, uh, the passage where uh, Abraham offers up his son. Uh, and the word faith does not um, occur there in that passage. Uh, he just simply goes up and he obeys the Lord. Um, um, and so James, of course, uh, talks about this when he says that he uses the, the term he's justified by, by works and not by faith. Um, but I think, I, I think um, again, to me, when you look at the material, there's, a, there's an order. Genesis 22 follows Genesis 15. Genesis 17 follows Genesis 15. Genesis 15 is kind of the root, and those are the fruit, as it were. Um, 
And so uh, when I and when I think of um, of of the importance of uh, obedience, um, Paul talks about this in the obedience of faith. But I think uh, in in Romans chapter one, I think um, there is a distinction between faith and obedience. Um, but how can I put it? When you read the Abraham story, faith comes first. And uh, then these other things follow, but they're kind of um, how can I put this um, inextricable. Uh, the faith will lead to obedience. It's when you look at uh, the faith which appears in Genesis 15. It's a it's the Hebrew uh, mean buh with the preposition bait, um, and it means sort of a throwing yourself onto. Uh, um, it's not a mental ascent, not a mental ascent at all. And uh, that mental ascent uh, is something that uh, um, Paul would never accept, and neither would James. I mean, that James talks about the devils believe and tremble. So, so uh, maybe uh, part of the problem is um, is trying to separate them radically. I think they have to be separated, but there is a a definite connection, you know. I mean, J- uh, James uh, uses that expression, "faith without works is dead." And uh, and Paul, we, when when he deals with the issue of antinomianism, he says, "Shall we continue in uh, uh, sin that grace may abound?" Of course not, you know. But he saw that uh, people could could connect with that, and uh, and he had to uh, upbraid, you know, he had to upbraid them, and uh, and basically. Um, uh, um, you know, disagree totally uh, with them and say that you've got the whole thing wrong. Hmm. We've been talking to Steve and Dempster about justification in the Old Testament, but let's take a break to hear from one of our sponsors. Midwestern Seminary's Doctor of Ministry degree program is your next step in training for local ministry. The Doctor of Ministry program at Midwestern Seminary is designed to equip and train leaders with a commitment to the local church. With multiple emphases available, including counseling, church revitalization, expository preaching, leadership, and missions, among others, your program provides the equipping you need in practical theology for direct church work and ministry leadership. And because all of our doctoral programs are modular, you don't have to leave your current ministry to pursue your degree. For more information, visit mbts.edu today. That's mbts.edu. We're back from our break and ready to talk to Stephen Dempster some more about justification in the Old Testament. As we're talking about Abraham, and, and you, you are carefully putting Abraham's faith and obedience in perspective here, um, when we talk about Abraham, we can think not just of the context of Genesis, but we can also think of everything that's going to happen next but then also everything that's happened before. And you hinted at this uh, when you first started uh, at the beginning. Uh, you mentioned uh, even Noah, for example. Maybe we can uh, take a, a bird's eye point of view here for a second. And in your, in your chapter, for example, uh, you talk about how when we take a larger biblical perspective, whether it, it's not just Abraham, but then Noah and then Adam, uh, you say, well, Abraham is a is a type of new Adamic figure. Uh, the, the first Adam 
didn't believe in the word of God. He disobeyed. He wasn't righteous. Then comes Noah. Noah does believe in the word of God and is righteous. And and you talk about how there's a sense in which he he saves the world, preparing it for uh, uh, future salvation for all the earth. But then we come to Abraham. And uh, again, Abraham is connected to Noah and then to Adam. And here is another step in God's plan of salvation uh, and, and his promise matures. Um, and here, like you've just described in Genesis 15, we see this very striking language that he is he's righteous. Now, uh, because he's believed in the promises of, of Yahweh, can you describe how, how is Abraham a, a type of new Adam? And then how does that point us forward? Because you hinted at it just a second ago. How does that point us forward to Jesus Christ as the last Adam? Yeah, yeah, uh, that's, that's excellent. I mean, it, it, as one of the striking things I found out in my study, um, which I don't think anyone has seen before, but it was one of those obvious things, that came to me after you spend time looking at the larger structure of the, the text. Um, well, Adam, of course, didn't obey the Word of God, and, uh, and as a result, we have Noah. Um, and it's really interesting of Noah. His father, um, when Noah's birth is announced, um, there's been a lot of births in that genealogy in chapter 5, but when Noah's birth is announced, um, um, he's at the end of the line, and he... Uh, uh, Lamech, his father, um, says uh, he names the child Noah because, in fact, uh, he hopes that he will relieve him from the relieve the world from the curse by which God has cursed the ground. So there's this hope in a son that will bring relief from the curse, and um, and so his name is Noah in Hebrew, Noah. Uh, um, but then after this story of uh, the birth of Noah, we have the world going, uh, the, the writer goes back in time, and there's this uh, uh, strange story of the sons of God and the marrying the daughters of men. But the world becomes full of violence, and, and it says everyone sins from their youth. It's a, it's a, a d- description of almost total corruption. And then it says simply this, Noah, the Noah... Adonai. That is, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. So Noah was one of all of everyone, but he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Um, and it's really interesting. Um, in Hebrew, there's a word play there because uh, uh, Noah's name reversed is the word grace. Hmm. Um, and so he finds grace in the eyes of the Lord. So uh, God reverses the situation. And, and with uh, with Noah, he gives him grace. And then, what is the interesting thing? Noah is the tenth from Adam, and it says right in the very next chapter that he was righteous. Now, uh, Carol Kaminsky has done some great work on this, and I think the point is that his righteousness didn't come um, from being, you know, the, the righteous person who did all these good things, and God saw him and looked upon him and changed. And uh, and decided to save him, but no, he he was given this righteousness, um, and uh, and as a result, but he's the tenth from Adam, and a covenant is made with him uh, that in fact uh, the world would continue, um, and he's kind of a uh, uh, he saves the world, um, 
saves the animals, saves his family, but that's all he's able to save. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really interesting. Uh, John Levinson talks about this being kind of damage control, but he is a kind of a new academic figure. Um, and then what happens, of course, is you get after uh, the flood story, you get the story of the Tower of Babel, and then you get the calling of Abram, who is the tenth from Noah on that line. And so it's clear. Uh, and then you get with, you know, the world has gone to pot. Uh, all the nations of the world have gone to pot. And essentially what you have is this call by God to bless the entire world through Abram's seed. And I think clearly then Abram is a new Adamic figure. Mm-hmm. And he's going to actually give birth to a new Adamic figure that will, in fact, be a blessing to the world. And I actually think as you work your way through the Old Testament, you see Abram's line, you see he gives birth to the nation, and, and that then the line of Judah, and then, of course, what you have is someone from the line of Judah, David. And that we find, oh, David, an eternal covenant is made with David, and David is not the one. We find that out very quickly, mm. uh, that he's not the one. But someone from the line of David will be that uh, person, and Christians, we, we argue that this is um, going to be Jesus. Uh, Jesus will be the one who will restore the world to the lost conditions of paradise, and, uh, and he does that through um, a sacrificial offering um, where, by which we trust in him as the seed of Abraham, and we, uh, by trusting in him, we re- become righteous. Uh, and are forgiven from our sins. So I guess that's the way I would see the trajectory working in, in very, very short order, um, sort of a, a brief sketch of everything. But I think you're right. I mean, Abraham is clearly an Adamic figure. Um, he is going to do it. Abram and Sarai are like uh, Adam and Eve um, again. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it's interesting, too, that uh, Sarah has a, lar- a huge part to play in this. And I think it's significant, uh, when you look at the, the overall development of the scriptures, their son, Isaac, is a son who brings laughter into the world. He's named Laughter, of course. He brings laughter into the world. And he is born as a miracle child, clearly. Sarah's 90 when she has him. Uh, Abram's uh, 100. Uh, it's absolutely impossible on, on any kind of... Uh, uh, human way of looking at it, that this child could be born. But the New Testament even ramps it up when Jesus is born of a virgin. Mm. You know, I mean, uh, we have a sort of almost prequel to uh, Jesus' birth with the birth of John the Baptist and uh, from Elizabeth and Zachariah, who were very much like Abram and Sarah. Right. But then when, when, uh, when Jesus is born to Mary, the child is unbelievably... Um, uh, blessed and and you think about also the angels that showed up to announce um, the birth of Abraham. Well, a whole uh, choir of angels shows up to announce the birth of Jesus. Uh, and I was going to say announce the birth of Isaac with Abraham and Sarah, um, but to a whole choir of angels shows up to announce the birth of Jesus. This is uh, the climax in some ways of redemptive history. This this birth of Christ. I've always thought the the gospel writers, uh, even if they don't say it explicitly, uh, all these observations you've just made, 
it just seems to to scream out that uh, the one that it, that Adam uh, typologically, you know, foreshadowed, he's arrived, uh, and and the one that Abraham, um, the the covenant with Abraham, all those blessings that now in Christ, this new Adam, this new Abraham. Uh, suddenly, uh, the the climax of the story is at hand, the, and and with that, the kingdom and and so on. But the gospel writers seem to be so aware of that. And whether it's the angels or the the irony that uh, you know the these women who um, you know with John the Baptist seemingly can't have a child or too old to have a child, and and uh, all of these little hints seem to um, seem to indicate uh, that. Uh, God's promises have not been lost. Uh, they, they haven't been forfeited. He hasn't forgotten yeah. about them. Uh, in fact, they've continued, and now they're actually coming uh, coming to fulfillment. Now, maybe as we finish out here, we could uh, push the storyline along from uh, Genesis and, and the Pentateuch and the Torah uh, all the way to the prophets. You've written a commentary recently on Micah, uh, and it's one, yep. I think our listeners, if you pick up this commentary, I, I think you will really enjoy it. If you're a pastor, I would encourage you to preach through uh, a book like Micah and uh, allow uh, Stephen Dempster to guide you as you as you study and prepare. But Stephen, maybe we could uh, focus on this as we can as we conclude. Uh, we've been talking about you know Adam to Noah to Abraham and then to Jesus Christ. Where are the prophets in all of this? And, and is uh, justification, you know, we see it in Genesis 15 yeah. and Abraham being counted righteous. Is this lost on the prophets or do they have a way of, of uh, capturing the salvation of the past and, and, and what they're hoping for in the future? Yes. Um, well, I think the prophets, uh, um, yeah, uh, the prophets are very, very much are uh, looking back um, at what is. They they look forward, of course, but they look back at the failure of Israel to keep the law, and um, they, they it, it's overwhelming. I mean, um, you look at uh, clearly why they're in. While well, when Israel ended up in exile. Uh, it was because of the judgment of God. You read it in the Book of Lamentations. You read it in the uh, so-called Deuteronomistic history. They end up in exile. They uh, um, they fail to keep the Torah. Um, and um, and what is the, and, and and the, the Torah anticipates this uh, as well. When Deuteronomy, when it says um, uh, you need to circumcise your heart, mm. and really, what does circumcise your heart mean? Um, and this is a, a word which is used in Jeremiah when he talks about the uncircumcision of the heart of Israel, very much like the language of Deuteronomy in the Torah. Um, but what is circumcision of the heart? Well, really, what Yahweh wanted was to, uh, to, uh, for Israel to love the Lord with all the heart, soul, and strength. Uh, you find that in the Shema, which is the absolute essence of what the Torah was all about. Well, what is that about? Well... Um, it's about having an un- it's having a, a, a circumcised heart, where that hard, um, at least, uh, how would I put it, that that shell around the heart, which renders one impervious to faith, is peeled away, and therefore one can have faith in the Lord and follow Him. And uh, 
And I think that's what, in Deuteronomy 30, where it talks about that, it says, when you go into exile, and when you turn to Yahweh, um, Yahweh will circumcise your heart so that you will love him with all your heart and with all your soul. And he says, this part, this won't be uh, far away, it's not, uh, you won't have to cross the sea or go up to heaven, it's simply belief and, and trust. And, uh, and believe in this word. And Paul picks that up in, in Romans chapter 10. But, um, but the prophets see the failure of this, um, the Sinai covenant, which I think, uh, uh, which uh, Jer- uh, Paul picks up on too, was saying that that was kind of an amendment to the, the covenant of, of Abraham. Uh, and it was what it, what it was to make, make people aware that um, they couldn't do this on their own. They needed God to help them. They needed someone to to save them from their their lostness. And uh, and as a result, uh, uh, they show the prophets point out, you know, a, a number of places. You know, Jeremiah puts to puts this and describes the inveterate human condition uh, endemically as uh, can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots. You know. My people cannot change their ways. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can uh, who can know it? it? There's this awareness that Israel needs a new heart, and uh, and and but God is going to give it to them someday, and um, and and so there is this prediction of this new covenant which will come, which God is going to make with His people. Um, after the judgment, and uh, and also there's the this this of course the the issue of the Messiah. That who is this going to be? This one that's going to come to redeem Israel, um, and you get this. It's, it's someone from the line of David, but but um, how is this going to trans? How what's going to happen? You know, to this person. Uh, um, and you know this is the whole issue, and, and you find, for example, in the book of Micah, and in the book of Isaiah, uh, particularly the book of Isaiah, a servant who's going to come, who seems to be a royal servant, who's going to bring justice to the nations, but he's going to be someone who is also going to uh, um, suffer as well. And what is he going to suffer for? He's going to suffer for his people's sins. And uh, and so you get these ideas in the this messianic understanding of how the world's going to be set to right. Yes, it's going to be a powerful ruler that's going to be do it. But, um, but there's also this idea of suffering there as well, uh, that this ruler's, that, that, that's going to be involved with this ruler. And uh, I think the New Testament put, puts out the suffering comes first, and then the rule comes later. Um, sort of, uh, but the, the prophets are talking about a new hope for the people of God, a new covenant that's going to be made with the people um, after the failure of the Sinai covenant, and and this new covenant is going to bring uh, hope and light for for the world. Um, I really think that uh, you know it's, uh, when you look at uh, the story of the disciples on the Emmaus Road, uh, Jesus is saying, you know, look at all these things that have happened—the death and the resurrection of the Messiah. These things were to happen. And you have these these things in the prophets, you know, um, but uh, but you have to connect the dots, and uh, Jesus connected the dots so that uh, that his disciples were able to see these the lineage the, the, the 
the uh, the the lines, and uh, and we're able to see them as focused in him. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, I don't know. I mean, I could go on and on, but uh, but I hope that helps. It does. Uh, we've been talking to Stephen Dempster. Uh, he's written a chapter called "He Believed the Lord: The Pedigree of Justification in the Pentateuch." You can find it in uh, the book published by Crossway called The Doctrine on Which the Church Stands or Falls. Steve, this has been a great conversation about a central issue of the Christian faith. And thank you for coming on the Credo Podcast to give us uh, a perspective from the Old Testament. Well, it's been my, as I said at the beginning, Matthew, it's been, it's been my privilege. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.